This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Okay. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations so, from people like you. Today I'm going to continue with a, um, a few thoughts um, that I've been thinking about during the last couple of weeks. Um, so this talk will be continuing a kind of series of talks on the existential and communal aspects of Zen practice. So, um, last fortnight we talked about, uh, aloneness and isolation. And, uh, <clears throat> this Sunday, the, uh, 24th of May, I'd like to explore the topic of being at home <clears throat> in the world or not being at home in the world. And um, I'm going to start with a uh, talking about uh, the 13th century Zen master Dogen, who when he was a young monk, he grew up with the teachings of what were called original enlightenment. In other words, the teaching that <clears throat> all beings are inherently enlightened right from the beginning. All beings, meaning human beings, animals, trees, plants, mountains, seas, the earth itself. So this notion of original enlightenment was uh, contrary to, I guess, to the notion of a step-by-step uh, -step approach to the, the notion of enlightenment being a kind of goal that one achieved either in this lifetime or some lifetimes in the future. So as a young man, as a young monk, Dogen basically struggled with the question of if we're all originally enlightened, then why practice? Why do we have to sit? Why do we, do we have to make some kind of effort? So um, this became kind of like Dogen's personal koan in a way. And I'd encourage all of you to develop your own kind of personal version of that as to why I practice. If everything is already originally enlightened, um, original or another word that was often used or another metaphor that's been used for original enlightenment is original dwelling place. And uh, Robert Aiken Roshi uh, wrote a book of essays entitled original dwelling place. And, uh, 
So, of course, the notion or metaphor of dwelling brings me back to the, the metaphor of home. And uh, original dwelling place is the sense in which uh, it points to this ultimate reality. That's always quite impossible to pin down in words, but um, this sense of original enlightenment, original dwelling place, points to the this world that we live in being a holy place, being a sacred place, being an enlightened place. So, <clears throat> um, another way of asking a very similar question that Dogen asked then would be, well, if we are all originally dwelling, if we are all originally at home in the world, why don't we always experience ourselves in this way? Why do we often at times um, fail to feel at home in the world or in the existential sense, we fail to dwell. We have that sense of uh, unease and, uh, and I want us to maybe present in this talk or suggest in this talk that this notion of not being at home in the world of homelessness or alienation is another way of understanding the Buddhist word dukkha, this notion of not being quite in sync, of being never being satisfied, of of suffering. Um, this question about being at home in the world or not being at home in the world <clears throat> was a question which also interested the uh, the twentieth century German philosopher Martin Heidegger and who wrote a, a famous book called Being and Time. And um, in, this, in, the, in, this, uh, in, this, uh, in the book Being and Time, which was his earlier work, um, Heidegger argued that not being at home in the world, uh, feeling homeless or homelessness was actually the core experience of human beings. However, in his later work, um, he turned towards the possibility that we can experience ourselves as being at home in the world. And his later philosophy became very much more poetical uh, than the, the Being and Time book. And this question of being at home in the world was quite central to his meditative thinking. Now, so... In this talk, I'm going to respond to this, this, this question of being at home or not being at home in the world by making a distinction between our essential or original dwelling place and existential dwelling. And the definition of existential dwelling here is realizing or understanding our essential or original dwelling place. The subtle distinction, because we don't necessarily experience ourselves as original dwelling place. We don't necessarily experience ourselves as being at home in the world. So existential dwelling is the way of realizing that original dwelling. And this particular distinction I've taken from the work of Professor Julian Young, who uh, specializes in European philosophy. He used to teach at Auckland University, but now he teaches in the USA. And I also want to suggest from our Zen perspective that this uh, realization 
of our original dwelling, this existential dwelling, which realizes the original dwelling, is something that we bring forth in our zazen practice. So we don't necessarily think our way to existential dwelling. We, through our just sitting practice, we open ourselves or surrender ourselves to that coming forth. The zazen as a practice bringing forth that sense of original dwelling, of being at home in the world. So I'm just going to speak a little bit more of the notion of dukkha as homelessness or alienation in the world, the sense of not being at home in the world. And then I'm going to suggest that Zazen is a way of returning home to the world, and uh, which Dogen metaphorically referred to as taking the backward step. So initially we always practice, we normally get into Zazen because of dukkha, because of suffering. We get caught in the world of loss and gain, fame and fortune, good and bad. And we find ourselves not at home in the world and alienated from the true self or essential self. To quote the uh, Mazumi Roshi, um, Joko Beck's first teacher, our ordinary life is intimate to begin with, i.e. original dwelling. But unfortunately, we experience our everyday life as a split life, as if the enlightened life is separate from it. So there are lots of ways, lots of ways and interpretations of what dukkha is. But um, this is just another interpretation, another suggestion that we reframe dukkha as this feeling of not being at home, of homelessness, or feeling unsettled, or anxious, or afraid. And this also includes uh, our resistance to what is um, a kind of saying no to life, as in this life, this moment of our lives. And, uh, you know, we can kind of like use the, uh, the journey metaphor that we go then in search of our home. We go in search of, the, we go on the odyssey in search of our true self, our true home. Some of us find it in Zen. Others find it in other particular um, um, spiritual traditions or practices or philosophies. And so we could say then that the ending of dukkha is rediscovering ourselves as being at home in this world, in this particular body, and in this particular place, situation, and historical time. Now, again, just to uh, just give another kind of perspective on dukkha, and this is not exhausting but it's just giving a, a few other examples um, that I often think about is that we could think of dukkha as being caused by, for example, interpersonal violence and abuse. And secondly, uh, technological violence, the exploitation of the earth and the people on the earth as resources, uh, animals as resources. So firstly, interpersonal violence and abuse. Well, we are social beings. Our self is always a social self, and hence we're always vulnerable to uh, 
the kinds of unsettling situations and that cause us not to feel at home in the world with other people. So it's in the nature of human beings uh, because of our particular uniqueness, our social being social beings, for example, we can feel judged by others. And uh, we therefore can also judge ourselves and hence we experience such uh, difficult uh, and painful uh, effects or emotions such as shame, embarrassment, humiliation, as well as anger and rage and all these kinds of unsettling ways of being. And so the, unfortunately, uh, the literal home in which children live and adults live is often not a safe <clears throat> home. And so we're not always at home when we're at home. And, uh, and as many of you will probably appreciate, the vast majority of domestic violence does occur and is perpetuated in the home. And, uh, and also we can experience interpersonal violence and abuse in schools and in other situations. <laughs> and of course, there's the vast context of social violence that is experienced in terms of based upon race or gender or ability. Basically, the whole world of us and them, the whole the, you know, the, the inhospitable and sometimes inhumane treatment of the other. The other uh, focus or cause of dukkha, I'm just pointing out in this particular talk, could also be seen as technological violence. Um, and, uh, the uh, the vast, you know, agro agriculture, the um, um, the, the the tragedy of the modern age is often that the the wonder of the earth and that the wonder of being that indigenous peoples would have been, we would, would assume part of that even medieval, medieval cultures would have been aware of uh, has been lost because of our, from the enlightenment onwards, this kind of notion of technological rationality, calculative thinking means to an end kind of thinking, seeing what, what we can see in the world as resources to be exploited and seeing people as resources to be exploited as being kind of like the dominant, mm -hmm. dominant kind of culture in our, that we've grown up in, which has led, of course, to the exploitation of the earth and the current crises we face ourselves in or find ourselves in. And um, Heidegger referred to this as the loss of the gods. Um, but another way, a, a simpler way of thinking about this would be the disenchantment of the world. Um, the sense in which the, this, this, the sacredness and holiness of the world has been lost uh, due to this kind of technological violence. And mm -hmm. uh, the, this was famously captured in poems like by T.S. Eliot called The Wasteland. Um, the... Uh, the, the symbol of the petrol station in Gatsby by Fitzgerald is the 24-hour service station, the 24-hour shopping center, all of these kinds of uh, ways in which technology takes over the world. And often we find ourselves socialized into that culture and we lose that sense, we forget being, the wonder of being, the that kind of awe that we might experience as children or maybe as adolescents gradually gets eroded and we become alienated from it. And um, 
So we find ourselves alienated from ourselves and from the wonder of nature. So this loss of the gods, this disenchantment, the loss of the holy, the experience of shame, like the notion of the symbol of the, the, the apple in the garden and the sense of shame and losing that sense of being at home or being at one in the world. Um, this can also be this, this notion that we've lost the sense of wholeness, we've lost the sense of completeness, and uh, we experience a painful sense of lack. And uh, <laughs> this painful sense of lack, again, can be interpreted as dukkha. This sense of lack as alienation from the self, which takes on different forms according to our unique personal situation and culture we find ourselves in. can also be experienced as the dread of nothingness or nihilism or just the general loss of meaning as well. So... Coming back then to Zazen as, as a kind of metaphor of returning home, to rediscovering our original dwelling, to rediscovering our sense of being at home in the world. <coughs> in a way, the practice uh, described by Dogen that we practice here, just, just sitting, is a sense of just letting ourselves be, just releasing ourselves to be ourselves. Um, this sense of dwelling is another... Met metaphor of intimacy, um, the intimacy of being and beings. Beings and, be and being, being and beings are not, not one and not two, but they come together as interaction, as intimacy. Um, the relative and the absolute uh, fit together as a box fits on its lid. And uh, so we could think of practicing zazen as a way of discovering that original unity, that original oneness, that original sense of being at home, that original sense of already at homeness. And it's important to, as Barry Majid teaches, to that, that zazen and dogen too, that zazen is not a technique. It's not, it's not, a, it's not something we do <clears throat> to take us somewhere else. Um, it's, um, it can be better described using the ancient Greek word of, of, of techne. Um, so the, this again, I took this from the philosopher <coughs> I mentioned before, um, Julian Young. Um, the Greeks had two meanings for the word, what they called techne, which is very interesting. The first one word was physis, which in the ancient Greeks meant basically what we would call nature. And nature naturally brings forth, um, such as when the bud bursts into the flower. Then the word techne, T-E-C-H-N-E, the Greeks use for when nature's blossoming is aided by the hand of the craftsperson or the artist. So we might call the universal life force that brings forth new buds, we could call that Buddha nature. Um, so Buddha nature discloses itself to itself when we sit in Zazen. All we have to do is get ourselves out of the way in order to allow <laughs> that to happen. By that, I mean our usual sense of self-preoccupation. So Zazen, in a sense, we could see is our craft. It's our practice. And uh, we give our trust to that craft of Zazen, which brings forth this natural sense of, of, of being at home in the world.
So when we forget ourselves, we release ourselves from this constant preoccupation with means to an end, this constant preoccupation with how am I going? Am I there yet? And uh, we experience uh, in the Zen language the intimacy of the 10,000 things, the experience, the intimacy of everything. One is all, all is one, coming together moment by moment. By letting be, we bring forth what, which, what, what was previously concealed from us by our culture, by our conditioning, by our self-preoccupation. That's why the promised land is right here now in Zen practice. So Zazen helps us to see, to bring forth that already at homeness in the world. As Mazumi says, intimacy is nothing but realizing the fact that already you are as you are. Your essential nature is nothing but you as you are. You could not be anything other than you as you are right now. Another way of thinking about this is um, we all participate in, 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 in being with a capital B, like all beings with a small b participate in being, in existence. We're all existing. In a sense, being with a capital B is calling us home. And when we practice, we, we experience this call, we become more attuned to it. We, and we always are an awakening to the presencing of this moment. And our subjective experience of being with a capital B is a kind of presencing. And, uh, but to be unsettled is to experience dukkha. But to settle is to create a home in this world of impermanence and interconnectedness. So in a sense, you could talk about this nirvana as settling, feeling at home in the world. I realize that the world is my world. They're not separate. And to dwell, as the saying, to continue the metaphor, when we're dwelling, when we're at home in the world, we want to take care of, of, the, of the home. We want to take care of ourselves, take care of others, take care of the, the earth around where we live and the locality where we're with. And, that's another story in a sense that we can't really get into that today. So one important caveat is to not confuse being at home with a desirable state such as peace or calm. We're not trying to arrive at a, a state, a self-state, which is constantly changing all the time. We're not trying to hang on to peacefulness or calmness. So being at home is much more <clears throat> like that, that metaphor of the guest house, you know, the notion that self-states are coming and going, you know, moods, feelings are changing all the time, but we're this, this notion of welcoming, welcoming them all, um, of dwelling as being at the end, at one moment with each moment. And, um, and there will be times when, you know, we get interrupted, we get knocked off, our sense of being at home. We, there'll be times when resistance will arise. There'll be times when we experience that sense of a separate self again, the sense of being judged, the sense of feeling shamed. And you can really see how that pulls us away from feeling at home. And we no, we no longer experience that sense of being at ease. And uh, again, coming back to that notion of shame being the expulsion from the oneness of the garden. So home is where the heart is, home is the heart-mind, feeling at home, free to be ourselves, we feel safe and at ease, we can heal. And retreat can be seen as a time out from our culture of 
use value of means to an end. Um, Barry's fond of quoting a Zen teacher who describes Zazen as useless, in this, in, and that's deliberate in the sense of Zazen is not about that use value. It's not about productivity and consumption. So a retreat can be seen like a holiday or a holy day um, from this means to an end world of doing, of endless efficiency and productivity. On retreat, we return to being. We hear the call of being. We awake to being, the reverence and awe we experience in nature, for example. We take a backward step and uh, we return to that wonder. So practice is, is necessary to realize our natural, coming back to Dogen's original question, why practice? Well, practice in a way leads us back, returns, we take that backward step to realize our at-homeness in the world. Because our culture and our interpersonal relationships are often pulling us out of it. So we come back to being and our essential dwelling. So once again, to repeat, the notion of original dwelling place is possessed by all human beings. That is, they are original dwelling, they are enlightenment, all the time from the beginning. But existential dwelling consists in understanding and realizing that, what we've lost. And one's essential dwelling, and then living our lives in the light of that understanding, living our lives in the light of that realization. In the same way, taking refuge in Buddha Dharma Sangha is finding our home in Buddha Dharma Sangha. <laughs> and the home we discover is not a castle surrounded by a moat. It's more like um, discovering our home in the commons, um, a home that is open and welcoming to all neighbors and strangers and discover discovering in that way that our original dwelling place is also discovering ourselves as community. And this is where the link comes back down from the existential kind of aspects of Zen to the communal aspects of Zen. We discover ourselves as community in that way. And we can, in a Zen practice, if you, if you go into this deeply, uh, you can also identify with our ancestors. And not only our, our parents and, and other ancestors that you'd like to see, for example, people that have been beneficial influences on your lives, but the ancestors in notion of the previous teachers that have gone before us that have maintained and sustained this particular practice. And finally, we can extend that notion of home and hospitality and caring for to caring the ethic of caring for the earth and uh, identifying ourselves as the indigenous peoples did as guardians or custodians of the earth uh, and our calling being to pass this on to future generations so to conclude the world is a holy place a sacred place we can stand before it once again in awe and reverence and this is why in our tradition we speak of buddha nature <laughs>